We, I think we were 10 weeks in First Thessalonians. That's with five chapters. We have three chapters in Second Thessalonians. And I'm enjoying uh, these two books. And they're, they're, they're really, for us as believers, uh, it's a time to stir our hearts. It's a reminder for us uh, that Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming back. And I, I hope that that's in your heart and in your mind every single day. That you live in expectancy of Christ's return. I titled this morning's message, God's Righteous Judgment in That Day. And whenever it speaks of that day, it's speaking of a specific day that is yet to come. That day has not yet arrived. That day is in the future. It was prophesied would come, and that day will come. We start out in 2 Thessalonians with the Apostle Paul identifying himself as the author and uh, the one that penned this letter. We can read in chapter 3 of this letter also that he wrote the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. And so we know that the Apostle Paul was the one that penned First and Second Thessalonians. These two letters, and this is a reminder to you, it's important to know this, that these two letters, Paul wrote 14, if he wrote the book of Hebrews, he wrote 14 of the 27 New Testament books. And First and Second Thessalonians is believed to have been his first two letters. Some believe that Galatians was before that, but it was at least in the very beginning of the Apostle Paul's ministry that he penned these two letters to the church at Thessalonica. The time frame that these letters were written were sometime around 52 to 53 A.D., So to give you a perspective of where we're at in church history, that's about 20 years after the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. And so there's the time frame. The church had been going for 20 years. Paul had been on these missionary journeys. He went in and established this church there in Thessalonica. And then as we read in the first letter, after Paul and Silas and Timothy were ran out of town, so to speak, they were being persecuted for the gospel's sake. They had to flee that city. They were instructed to do so, and they fled that city for their very life. And we know that the Apostle Paul had great concern for these brand new believers, and so he wrote a letter back to them. He wrote it from the city of Corinth. And he wrote this letter back to them to encourage them. And as you, we went through that first letter, we saw that all the way through that Paul kept making references to Christ's return. So it's obviously that there was some discipleship that went on with these believers in regards to the return of Jesus Christ. They weren't all just sitting wondering when all this or how this was going to take place. I believe that the Apostle Paul had discipled them in those things. But before we get into 2 Thessalonians, I want to remind us of a few things in 1 Thessalonians that are important for us to remember. 
First Thessalonians, if we were to divide the book into two halves, the first three chapters of it would be Paul looking back as he's writing this letter to them. He's looking back at the believers there that are there in Thessalonica and he's rejoicing in his God for all that God had done in them. And he was just thankful for the report that he got back from Timothy of how well they were doing, that they were persevering in persecution, and they were, they were actually growing as brand new believers. And Paul rejoiced in that. In chapter 4 and 5 of his first letter, he then began to look forward. And so first he looked back and was thankful. Now he's looking forward and he begins to exhort the believers at Thessalonica, that you need to continue to grow. And he exhorted them in that. We read in chapter 1, verse 2, Paul writes, he says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. His thankful heart for them. In verse 7 and 8, he says, You became examples Speaking of the believers there, you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. Again, Paul rejoicing. Here's a church that was becoming a model church for the surrounding churches and that they were taking the gospel everywhere they went. And it was even in light of the persecution they were receiving. In verse 9, he was rejoicing that they turned from their idols to serve the living and true God. In chapter 2, verse 13, Paul wrote, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, you received it from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And in verse 19, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Here's Paul. It's like, it's like him thinking ahead and looking ahead to that day when he would stand before the Lord and it would be like him having the church at Thessalonica around him and, and being able to present these believers before the Lord. You are our glory and our joy. You see, Paul saw the work of God as being glorious. I hope you see it that way in your own life. Look what you used to be. Look what you've come from. Look what you are now. Look what God is doing. That's all worthy of rejoicing. That's what Paul was doing here as he rejoiced in them. In chapter 3, verse 9, again Paul says, For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Paul had this great desire to see people saved, but he even had a greater desire to see them grow and mature and go forward in their walks. In chapter 4 and 5, Paul begins then to look forward with the desire that he had to see them grow, to see them mature. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, 
just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Abounding more and more means that Paul wanted to see and was exhorting them to go further, grow more, move ahead in your walk. In verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. He wanted them to grow in holiness. He wanted them to abstain from the things that were surrounding them day in and day out. The things of the world that were wanting to draw them away from the things of Christ. But then in verse 9, he also wanted them to abound and to grow in their love towards one another. He says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But then he says this, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. In other words, don't be content. Don't just say, yeah, I I love my brother and sister, but are you willing to lay down your life? Are you willing to give it up? Are you willing to even go further in your understanding of God's love towards you and the love that He calls you to have towards one another? In verse 13 and 14, Paul says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. And so all the way through this letter, Paul is giving them words of hope that those who sleep in Christ, those who know Christ just fall asleep, that we have this hope in Jesus Christ of being reunited with one another someday, going to be with the Lord if you know Christ. In chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Are we living that way, church? Are we living in expectancy of Christ's return? That He could come back at any moment? Do you, in fact, do you really believe that Jesus Christ could come back? That He will come back? Is that a conviction that you have in your heart? That you're convinced that He's coming back? That we're going to go to be with Him? Those are, those are all important things. You see, it's, it's one thing to be a Christian here in this world and in this life, but where are you going to go in eternity? What's your hope? Paul's first letter was written with an emphasis of encouragement, but also of exhortation to them. He encouraged them, but he also exhorted them in a number of different ways. Remember when we finished chapter 5, that whole list of all those exhortations that he gave? The second letter that Paul writes, which is only three chapters, it's primarily to clear up some misconceptions that they had from the first letter. Paul sent out this first letter, and Paul was a good writer. He knew what he was writing, and everything was accurate. But these are brand new believers that are trying to wrap their head around the things of Christ's return, and how it's all going to pan out, how it's all going to come to pass. 
And he was wanting to clear and needed to clear up some misconceptions that he was hearing that they were having. There were some of the teachers that were going in and misconstruing some of his letter and teaching the believers there things that were not accurate. And Paul needed to clear up those misconceptions with them. And those misconceptions had to do with, in regards to the rapture of the church, the snatching away of believers, and also the second coming of Jesus Christ. Remember, I made the distinction between those two events that all fall under the heading of the day of the Lord. The rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation period, the day of the Lord, and the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ that will follow, all fall under the heading of the day of the Lord. These new believers, they were all filled with an anticipation. The Apostle Paul came in, they got saved, he discipled them, he told them about Christ returning. It's 20 years into church history since Jesus Christ had died and resurrected. These believers, I believe, were living right then, 20 years later, anticipating that Christ could come back in their time. Anticipating that even the words of the Apostle Paul were telling them that we who are alive and remain, as speaking of them, that Jesus Christ was going to come back in their own time. I think it made some of them fearful. Some of them were wondering to, uh, about those that were family, those that were friends, those that they knew that had fallen asleep in Christ. Are they going to miss out on some of the blessings that we would experience if Christ came back today? What about those that have passed on before us in Jesus Christ? They were concerned for them. Those that had fallen asleep, or were they going to miss out on some of the blessings that we're going to receive? And Paul's going to address that question. But more than any of the New Testament letters that we read in the New Testament, the 27 books, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians actually gives us more detail about the return of Jesus Christ than any of Paul's other letters. Keep in mind that these are the first letters that the Apostle Paul wrote in the beginning of his ministry. In these two letters that Paul addresses to the church here, this 20-year period of time that had elapsed now in church history, it brought the church to that place, I believe, of expectancy, but they didn't have a full knowledge. You see, there's more knowledge that we have of end times events, prophecies that have even been fulfilled in our day and age that were not yet revealed to the early church. They didn't understand some of the things that were only meant for us to understand in our time, in this generation. And so some of the things that the Apostle Paul spoke to them of, it didn't make sense. They couldn't see. Remember, they always had it in their mind that God was going to establish His kingdom here on earth. When our Messiah comes back and when Jesus Christ returns, He's coming to establish His kingdom here on earth. And that was true. But they didn't understand all the pieces to the puzzle. Paul was going to clear up some of those misconceptions. We know that Paul had already told the believers in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that Jesus was going to deliver us from the wrath to come. 
You see, the tribulation period that is coming, that is yet future, this seven-year tribulation period, I believe is a time of God's wrath. We're told in God's Word that He has delivered us from this wrath. That as believers, we are not appointed to wrath. That wrath that comes from the very hand of God upon a world that has rejected Christ is not meant for the believer. That the time of the tribulation period is a time where God is going to deal with the nation of Israel specifically, but He's also going to deal with a Christ-rejecting Gentile world also that has said no to Jesus Christ. And it is going to be the wrath of God upon a Christ-rejecting world also. The first chapter of this second letter, it could be divided into five parts. Paul starts like he does all of his letters with a greeting in verse 1 and 2. And then we see Paul again being thankful for the growth that he has heard and is hearing that was going on in the believers there in Thessalonica, how their love was abounding, how their patience of hope enduring this persecution that it was enduring. Paul was thankful once again for that. We also see in verses 6 through 8 that God's righteous judgments are going to come against those who do not obey the gospel. You see, when somebody doesn't obey the gospel, that simply means they're rejecting the good news of Jesus Christ. To disobey the gospel is to reject it. To say, I don't need that. I don't need that gospel. That may be good news to you, but it's not good news to me. And so we're going to read in this first chapter about God's righteous judgments against those who would not obey the gospel. In verses 9 to 10, we're going to see God's punishment of unbelievers when it comes to that day, that specific day that is still yet future. And then the last part of chapter 1, Paul's going to pray for the believers there at Thessalonica. Uh, He's going to pray for God's goodness and God's grace that it would be upon them. And so let's look at verse 1. We read, Paul and Salvanus and Timothy. Now, Salvanus, if if your Bible reads that way, or it could read Silas. Uh, Salvanus is just the Latin for Silas. So it's Paul and Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The one thing that I see in this first verse... Like Paul, quite often, he was writing to a church. When you think of the church, this is a local body of believers right here. Calvary Chapel Fellowship of Winston-Salem. You're the church. There is the church that uh, encompasses uh, believers over the whole world uh, that we could call the universal church in the sense that there are believers all over the world and God sees really one church, but he also sees a local body of believers. Paul's writing this letter to a specific church that was there in Thessalonica. But the word church itself is the word ecclesia, which simply means this. It's a, it's, an, it's a gathering or it's an assembly of believers. That's what we are here. We're the church. 
But what amazes me about the church is that within the church, there are people that have struggles. There are people that, uh, that uh, have failures in their life and even in their walks with Christ. Uh, we come together as a church here. And sometimes we, we, you know, we, we bring all kinds of things to church with us. Sometimes within the church, there's issues within the people's lives. There's issues even within the people in the church with one another. And this gathering of believers, this, this what's referred to as the family of God. We're, we're the family of God, church. We're a gathering of saints together in this place. We're the body of Christ. These are all terms that we find in Scripture. We're the body of Christ. And, and Jesus Christ is the head of the church. But that's pretty amazing to me that God brings people together like us and we just we function as a church body with all of our failures and struggles. But there's something else that amazes me is that even in all of the struggles and the failures that we have even with one another within the church, it never changes your position between you and God. He, he, never, he never stops calling you a child of God. He never, uh, he never kicks you out of the church, so to speak. He, 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 the relationship that you have as a child of God, it never changes. But relationships change with us, don't they? Uh, many times there's people within the church that give up on each other. We give up on each other. We say, you know what, I'm struggling here. I'm having a hard time. We give up on each other, but God never gives up on us. We need to ask the Lord for that same patience, that same long-suffering with one another, that same love that we're called to have towards each other. We need to ask God to work that in us because we're the body of Christ. And God wants to do something through this church. He wants to do something through your individual lives in this church. And it's always, it's always a good thing when everyone knows that. If you come to church and you feel like you're just, you know, you know no one even knows if I'm here or not. If you come here and you don't serve in the body of Christ, well, somebody else is doing it. No, we're all part of the body of Christ. Paul says in verse 2, he says to these believers there, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. This wasn't just a fancy way of starting his letter. There was truth in what Paul was saying to the believers. Every time he pinned down those words, grace and peace from God. You see, you, when you came to Jesus Christ, you first needed to understand the grace of God before you could ever experience the peace of God in your life. You can't get that order backwards. We need to understand God's grace that we might receive or be able to receive the peace that God wants to give us. In Romans 5.1, Paul said this, therefore having been justified by faith, or in other words, being made right in the eyes of God by faith, we have peace with God. 
When was the day that you actually had peace with God? Can you remember the days before Christ when you were wrestling with God? You didn't want to have anything to do with God. You were running from God. And then you gave your life to Christ and you experienced this peace in your heart, this forgiveness of sins in your life that was overwhelming. All of a sudden you were brought into this relationship with the living God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But we also, as believers, even though we have this peace with God now that we're a child of God, we still need the peace of God every single day, don't we? In different ways. That we need His peace. We read in 2 Thessalonians, looking ahead at chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace always in every way. How much peace will you need of God today? Whatever situation you have going on in your life. How much peace of God did you need this last week? In various situations that you encountered in your walk with Christ this last week? Did you need the peace of God in situations? That's He is the Lord of peace. He's the God of peace. He's the God of all comfort. He's the one that comes in and ministers to us when you're a child of God. It's important to note that you will never experience God's peace until you've experienced God's grace. Never. That's the order. It's these two words, grace and peace, that make up the good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We have peace with God. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, even in those two words. Look at what Paul says to these believers in verse 3. He is continuing with this thankful heart. And he's also wanting to encourage them. He says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren. That word bound means that Paul felt like he was under an obligation to thank the Lord. In other words, he's saying, I'm under obligation or I'm indebted to thank the Lord always for you, brethren. Why? Because of all the the incredible work that God had done in changing their lives and making them a new creation in Him. Look what He has done. I'm indebted to the living God. Look at the the life-changing power of God in their lives. Look what He's done. That's how Paul wrote, as he wrote this out. We are bound, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, all in accordance, same, saying the same thing. We're under obligation to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly. That's why. Your faith is growing. And then look what he says. And the love of every one of you abounds towards each other. That's number two. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all of your persecution and tribulations that you endure. Do you see the three things that Paul is thanking God for? That this church was actually moving ahead and growing. We actually read in First Thessalonians, his first letter, the same words. 
Remember what he wrote, and you can look at it. Chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of God our Father. That was what he was thanking God for in the first letter. But what he's doing here is he's thanking God, but he's thanking Him with a difference. The difference being is that not only did he see these things from a report from Timothy and hear of these things that was happening in them, but it's actually growing. You actually, from the time now that I'm writing this second letter, you're actually abounding in this. I'm even hearing the report that you're actually growing in that way. Your faith grows exceedingly is what he was praising God for and thanking God. The love of every one of you all, that it abounds towards each other. That's what he's thanking God for. And your patience and faith and all of your persecution and tribulations that you endure, you're patiently enduring as you're going through these hardships and trials of life, you're enduring. And I'm thanking God for that. I shared in this last letter that we should never stop growing and maturing as believers. We should never come to that place where we're just kind of feeling like we're idle. We're not moving ahead. You know, there's, there's nothing. I'm not being shaken up a little bit by the Lord. Uh, I'm not being convicted anymore either. You know, I mean, I, I, I think I've, you know, I've had all the conviction I can take. You know, I mean, but we should be people that are welcoming all of these things so that we would grow. God, I want to hear your word and I want to hear the purity of your word and I want to hear all that it has to say to me because there's areas of my life life that needs growth. I need to grow in my faith. I need to grow in my love towards one another and even towards you. And I need to be more patient in my faith as I'm enduring in this life, going through the trials and tribulations of this life. Paul says... In verse 4, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all of your persecution and tribulations that you endure. Think of that. Paul boasting of them among the churches of God. That's like a pastor going out to another church and then kind of bragging about the people in his fellowship. Going out and, and bragging about the people that are in this church. Let me tell you what God's doing in the people at Calvary Chapel Fellowship of Winston-Salem. Let me tell you what God is doing in their hearts. Let me tell you about the steps of faith that they're taking. Let me tell you about the love that is abounding in their life. That's what Paul was rejoicing in. And it, it, is, it was worthy of bragging about, boasting about, Because look what God is doing. I think any pastor, just like we do as parents with our children, when we're just so we're we're so thankful for them and so love them so much and we brag about them. And any pastor would want to be able to go out and brag in a sense, not for his glory, but for God's glory. Look what God is doing. Look what he has done. 
the Christian life should always be one of growing in faith. Where's your faith at even this morning? Can you think of time in your life maybe where you took greater steps of faith than you even do now? Where you were more willing to step out in faith and and see what God would do? And, and, And I would say that if you sense that you're kind of lagging in that way, that you need to ask God to, to grow you more. But know this, that if, if, if you're going to grow in faith, it, it won't always be easy. Some of us might be afraid to pray that prayer because growing in faith sometimes means that I'm going to be tested with fire. Sometimes, uh, you know, life experiences won't be easy and I'm having to trust God in ways that I've never had to trust Him before. Sometimes God's going to call me to a greater prayer life because I learn a lot about faith when I lift up my prayers before the Lord and then I see God answer them. And I see what God does through those prayers and God's increasing my faith. Jeremiah 33.3 says, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. We just simply need to ask and then when we ask and we see God move and we see God answer those prayers, our faith grows. We also, though, need to keep growing in our love for God, but also in our love for one another. It's not something that you receive Christ and you got it all at the beginning. But it's something that we grow in. We lay down our lives for one another in greater ways than we ever have before. You see, the Apostle Paul gave it all up. He said if it were even possible that he himself would be anathema, he would be a curse for Christ's sake if it meant the salvation of his fellow Jews. That was his heart. That was the work of God in one man that is no different than you and I. That He could take our life and He could give us this great love, this sacrificial, unconditional love for one another. We need to abound in that. Paul's rejoicing in the believers there that they were, they were abounding in this love. Paul, back in 1 Thessalonians 4.9, He said, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, brothers. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But then he says this, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase the more and more. In other words, it's not enough just to stay content with where you're at in your love for the church and love for the brothers in Christ but that you would increase the more and more. And now we see Paul thanking God for every one of them that their love was abounding towards one another. In other words, this was an answer to prayer. This is exactly what I wanted to see happen. You were loving one another, and now that love I'm hearing is abounding even more so in you. There was growth in faith. There was growth in love. And there was also growth in their enduring tribulations and trials. You see, we even grow in that, don't we? When things get tough. Think how you handle things now after you've been a Christian for a number of years versus how you handled them maybe 
the first week you got saved. Think about how you can grow in your dependence upon the Lord through trials and tribulations and when things get tough compared to how you used to handle them. That would be a good indicator that there's some growth that is going on inside of you. I'm trusting God that His hand is upon me even when things seem like they're out of control. I can't do anything about it. My health is failing. This and that. All of these various things that can come our way. And that doesn't even include the persecutions that this church was experiencing. Place yourself over in Iraq. Place yourself under the hand of ISIS, where believers have even been martyred for their faith. And not just there, but other parts of the world, where believers are having to endure through much persecution and much trial and much suffering. Could you imagine how these words sounded in their ears? As Paul was writing, that would be the equivalent to what these believers were experiencing there in Thessalonica. The church was under great persecution during this time in church history. Christians were being martyred for their faith and Paul was trying to encourage them but he was also thanking God that they were enduring in much affliction Paul when he wrote from prison writing to the church at Philippi excuse me in Philippians chapter 1 he says but I want you to know brethren that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel He's talking about even his imprisonments. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard. All these guards that are out there guarding me and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. You see the whole mindset that Paul had about trials and tribulations and persecutions? God's allowed this. God's allowed this trial to come into your life. God's allowed me to go through this time of testing in my walk with Him. He's doing this because He wants to grow me. He wants me to grow in my faith. He wants me to endure in a greater way through trials and tribulations and even persecutions in our life. In 1 Thessalonians 2.2, Paul wrote, But even after we have suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. In other words, Paul knew wherever the gospel went, when boldness, conflict would come. It it wasn't like, what are we doing wrong? Why, Why am I going through this, Lord? Why are you taking your hand off me? Why is all this going on in my life? What am I I doing wrong? You may not be doing anything wrong. You may be doing everything right. But God will allow those times to come in our life because God is going to grow you in them. He grows us in conflict. It's important to know. As a matter of fact, it's really where the growth happens. It's when you're getting you know, uh, up against the wall that we turn our eyes to the Lord. We see the salvation of our God. We see that He's able to redeem and to make things right. But then Paul goes on to tell these believers at Thessalonica about God's righteous judgment. Why would he want to tell them? Because they were under great persecution. They were suffering for the gospel's sake. They needed to understand that our God is righteous, that He's holy, that He is going to deal with those who have rejected and those who persecute you. Look at verse 5. Paul says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous 
judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and give you who, uh, and give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are heavy words. That's Paul wanting to encourage these believers. You don't need to take it into your own hands. God will one day repay those, all of those that have come against you. Paul's wanting to encourage them with these words that our God, our righteous God, will one day hold everyone accountable with everything they have done towards a child of God. God's judgments are righteous. Why are they righteous? Because He's holy. His judgments are righteous because everything that He does, there will be nobody that will stand before God someday and be unrighteously judged. They will all be judged according to God's righteousness, according to His holiness, according to His perfection. Every judgment that He makes, unlike our judges in the court system today that make wrong decisions, He will not make one wrong decision in His judgments. But as believers... We're called to endure persecution. And we're called to endure it for righteousness' sake. If you live for Christ, expect that you will have to endure some form of persecution in your life. As a matter of fact, Peter wrote, he says, Beloved, speaking to Christians, do not think that it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. In other words, don't be sitting there wondering and scratching your head. Why am I going through this? I thought being a Christian was, you know, supposed to be all good and everything. You know, I mean, why am I going through the things that I go through? He says, but rejoice to the extent that you are partakers of Christ's suffering. In other words, he suffered. So why should we not? That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, Peter says, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. On their part, God is blasphemed. But on your part, God is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. In other words, you look at the believers that are suffering around this world. You pick up Voice of the Martyrs or go onto the website and read about the persecution of the church that is going around this world right now and see if it won't encourage your heart as you read about that, how they're suffering, but they're enduring and they're going through these times of testing for the gospel's sake. Don't think it's strange, Christians, if you make a stand for Jesus Christ, that people won't like you for that. 
they will say things. They will, and, and you know, we live in a, in a society right now, in a, in a country, that we somewhat have some freedoms here, a lot more than most of the world. And so we have a greater responsibility. We should have even a greater reason to be more. You, you know, here's the thing, though. Usually people that are under great persecution like that, they actually become more bold than the people that don't have much persecution. Sometimes I think America needs to have a good dose of some persecution for the gospel, say, that would stir us to action. Because that's what was happening in the early church. They were, went everywhere in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says there was great persecution in the church. And as a result, of it, they went everywhere preaching the gospel. God spread them out like seeds around the world through persecution. Paul says in verse 5, he says that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. And Paul says he counted himself worthy to suffer for the God. Isn't that a mindset? He actually counted himself, he considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that should be revealed in us. That was Paul's heart. Peter understood suffering. In 1 Peter 3.17, he says, For it is better, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I would rather catch the suffering from this world for doing things right, for living for the Lord, than to suffer because of my sin, to suffer because of my, the things that I go out and do. We need to understand God's moral attributes to be able to understand His righteous judgments. It's important for us to know the very character of God, to know why God will be able to judge righteously. You see, God and His moral attributes is that God is holy. He's without sin. He's also love. He is not just a God that loves people, but He is the sum total of love. He is the manifestation of that very word. God is love, is what John wrote. So God is holy. God is love. But God is also righteous. He's just. He's the justifier. He is also right in all of His judgments that He does. And so for people to say, well, who is God to be coming and judging people? For you know, Because He's God. He's holy. He's just. He's a God of love. And all of those things hold itself in tension. But God will judge sin. He must. Why will He judge it? Because He's holy. He must judge sin. God is a righteous God, which means that He acts at all times in complete conformity to His holy nature. Everything that He does all lines up with His holy nature. Nothing will ever, His righteous judgments that He brings upon this world and upon man will ever step outside of that because God is holy. The last attribute, moral attribute of God is that He is truth. He, he's revealed to us in truth. In Psalm 12.6 we read, the words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. 
God is truth. He is the sum total of truth. And everything of these four attributes, moral attributes of God, is why God can righteously judge. He knows all the truth. No one pulls any, you know, on a, well, I was a Christian. Hey, wait, I, I went to church every week. Yeah, wait, no, God knows. There's nothing that somebody's going to pull over his eyes. And so when God judges, he does everything according to truth. Everything is according to his holiness and his love. It's all held in check. Verse 9, God will one day punish those that do not believe on that day. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because of our testimony among you, who, among, among you was believed. We're all, those of us that know Christ, going to return to this earth after the rapture at the end of the tribulation period. We're going to return with the Lord on that day, the second coming of Jesus Christ. That on that day, when God comes in righteous judgment to judge the peoples of this earth, He's going to come back and He's going to be glorified in you and in me. Can you, can you envision that? You coming back with the Lord and that God is glorified in His saints, those that are His children, those whom He has redeemed with His precious blood, coming back in righteous judgment against a world that has rejected Him. And we're told that God is going to be glorified in His saints. He's going to be admired among all those who believe. Incredible. Paul then finishes this first chapter by writing out his prayer. He actually, when Paul sits down and writes a letter to somebody and then you see that he's praying for them, he's writing his prayer out. So he's just sitting there and he begins to pray. And, and, and then he starts to write down what he's praying for them about. So that they can really get into his heart of what he's want, wanting to pray for them about. That was, that's what Paul's doing here. He begins then to write out his prayer to them. Look what he says in, in verse 11. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you love it when people pray for you? You're going through something. I get emails to the church. Pray for so-and-so. Pray for me. Pray for this. And I send it out to the church so that you would all pray. And the person that has put that prayer request into the church that says, would you have the church, would you have my brothers and sisters pray for me? They are gaining some encouragement knowing that you're praying for them. And so don't bypass those little, whenever you see the CCFW, I put that on there so that you go, oh, that's a prayer request. 
That's why I do that. And you begin to pray for that prayer request for so-and-so in our fellowship here, or somebody maybe outside the fellowship. But don't you love it knowing when people begin to pray for you when you're in the middle of it? It'll be you this week, and it'll be someone else next week. That's just the way that it is. But when we go through these hard times, these tribulations, we get encouraged by one another. That's what Paul is doing here. He says, I'm praying for you. I want you to know that I'm not just exhorting you, but I'm praying for you that these things would abound, that these things would grow in you, that you would glorify God with your life. That was Paul's desire for them. The three things that he says in his prayer, and we'll finish with this, is that God would count them worthy of this calling. Think of that. Paul praying for the believers there. That God would count them worthy of this calling. You see, church, we have a high, high calling as believers. God has a high calling upon your life as a child of God. And that calling that's upon our lives is that we would glorify God with our lives. Every aspect of who we are. Everything we do. Every business decision that we make. Every, every, every kind of decision that we make in life. That we would glorify God in our lives and through our lives. And glorify God in the eyes of other people. That God would receive the glory. That God would count them worthy of this high calling that's upon our lives. That was Paul's prayer for them. He also that God would fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power. That God would fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness is what He's praying for them. That He would be, or that we, excuse me, that we would be touched by God's goodness. When's the last time that you were overwhelmed with the goodness of God in your personal life? You actually, you know, God just did something just incredible. He showed you something about Himself. There's something there that you're just saying, God, you're incredible. The goodness of the Lord leads us to repentance, even the Bible says. When we think about the goodness of God, it's, it's everything that makes up all the attributes of who God is. His goodness towards me. That we would fulfill all the good pleasures of His goodness and the work of faith with power. And then thirdly, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified in you and in Him. Paul says, my prayer for you is that all of this would be done according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only by grace, church. Are you convinced of that, that you cannot do anything that would glorify God in your walk apart from His grace? God's enabling grace in your life enables you to be able to glorify God, give glory to Him, 
Because you know what? I, I can't get up and do anything for the Lord. I can't do anything in my life that would really bring glory to Him apart from Your grace, Lord. Because if You left me to myself and who I am and how I am, God, I'd mess it up. I wouldn't be. I, I couldn't glorify You with one bit of anything about me. But God, by Your grace... By your, by, by your incredible grace in my life, I can glorify you and bring glory to you with my life. Because look what you're doing in me. Look what you've done in me. We have an incredible God and Savior that we all serve. He loves you with a love that is hard for you to even wrap your head around. And all he's asking for us to do is to give our lives up like a living sacrifice unto him and to go for it in these last days. We need to go for it in these last days. We need to pick it up as a church and we need to say, Lord, the day is drawing near. And Lord, I want to be in that place where I'm going to glorify you with my life. It's so easy to get just consumed with the things of this world. But God, let me be consumed with the things of you. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.